0: Hi, I'm Shiv.
1: And I'm Chitra.
0: We are the co-hosts of this show, Software People Stories.
1: We're happy to bring you stories of people associated with software as makers or consumers.
0: In every episode, we talk to people on their own personal and professional journeys,
1: their interests and approach to work and life in a free-flowing conversational format. We hope that you will be able to draw your inspiration from their experiences and insights.
0: These podcasts are made possible by PM Power Consulting, who have helped individuals, teams, and organizations on their Delivery Excellence journeys. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. My colleague Sairam is in conversation with me and explains how unit card readers helped him pivot his career from being a chemistry professional to a software professional. How taking up a project that nobody else wanted to be part of as a one-man army and keeping extensive notes helped him understand the principles of agility in conversations with Craig Lagman. Applying concepts of incremental work in exploratory or R&D situations and the anti-pattern of measuring team velocity from his experience. We also talk about the concept of shared understanding. And finally, his advice after being in academics for a while for aspirants to the industry, particularly students. Listen on. Hi, Sairam. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories.
2: Hi, sure
0: I'm super excited to have this conversation for a couple of reasons. One, um, your background, you know, where um, the last few times when you interacted, there's always been something interesting that I've had as a takeaway. I'm sure that our listeners would also have a lot of things to learn from your own experience. And the second is that the fact that you've been working with uh, some of the people who created some of these agile standards, like less, uh, something that uh, I would like to know maybe secondhand in terms of how it is to work with them. So before we get uh, deeper, if you can introduce yourself, how you got into this profession, and then we can have the further conversation from there.
2: Fine, Shiv. Thank you. Uh, in fact, I have not uh, been um, into computer programming as per uh, as, as my as my fundamental qualification. I'm basically a chemistry or a chemical uh, person, and I was specializing on photographic sciences. Then uh, later, after working for about uh, three years in the field of uh, photography, covering all uh, type of uh, films like cinematography, x-rays, and so on and so forth, uh, somewhere in 1987, uh, that was a story by itself where I uh, got an opportunity to fix certain problems in uh, the then unit card readers. So that gave me a venue to explore opportunities in um, programming and then supporting data processing fundamentally. Then my initial days were uh, spent in scientific programming, which I've written using Fortran 4 and Fortran 77. And then later I moved on to the enterprise resource planning, which which was earlier known as uh, manufacturing resource planning, MRP2 and so on. Mm -hmm. But all in the life cycle, when I probably look at it, one big advantage that I had was that in most of my assignments, I stayed close with the customers.
1: Okay. And
2: uh, that gave me a big strength in order to deliver exactly what they wanted from time to time rather than taking up a big bang approach. And somewhere in 1994, 95, period, I was given a project which uh, failed almost thrice or four times in the past to develop an application for a logistics uh, group of companies and everyone was reluctant at the time to take up the project and nobody was willing to join me as well from my team (laughs) in the project. So I went all alone for almost uh, nine, nine months to 11 months roughly. and uh, could deliver the project uh, successfully. In fact, I was the only person who was doing everything right from analysis, design, coding, testing, uh, deploying, supporting, and also to the extent of designing the pre-printed forms for their invoices and all this kind of stuff, working with the printers in order to get it done. A number of things, like no, the actually when you talk about a development life cycle, I would call it as a project life cycle, mm-hmm. <laughs> end to end. Yeah. It looks more like was, a one man army. One man army. One mm. man army. I did, I did everything, and no, that's why it took long time, and it got, it, it had several modules. And uh, one thing interestingly, I was uh, very satisfied with the project, and I preserved all my node, and that is where after three four years, I had to, I had an opportunity to meet. Uh, Craig Larman, one of the uh, co-creators of Less, as you have been mentioning. And I was reflecting with him about this project. I didn't know anything about it, like Scrum or Iterative Development or XP at that point in time when I did this. Mm -hmm. Then I was sharing him step-by-step what I did and how the project uh, failed earlier and what I did, etc. One of the reasons for me to preserve this and talking to Craig Larman was that many in my organization at that point in time after this project succeeded started asking me, what did you do differently in order to make it as a successful project or maybe like, you know, bring it as a successful project. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an answer at that point in time because I didn't know what I did differently. (laughs) To Mm -hmm. be honest with you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was searching for an answer to this particular question. What did I do differently in order to make this project successful? So I was seeking some help externally, you know, someone who would help me to understand this. So that is where I, was, uh, I came in contact with Craig Larman in one of the UML conferences, which I had to organize at that point in time. So mm-hmm. uh, then we spent hours together reflecting on that. And he is the one who uh, introduced me to iterative and incremental development concepts. And okay. he mapped everything that I did to that incremental way of developing in uh, software. Mm, then nice. through whom uh, I got uh, first introduced uh, to Scrum. I heard the word scrum from him, from
0: the
2: the practitioner himself at the point in time. Then he, in fact, introduced me, introduced me to Ken Schauber. Okay. And um, then we spoke at length about extreme programming and test-driven development. So my Agile journey typically started much earlier before even understanding what that concept was. So. Mm -hmm that was uh, the one which really made the whole thing a lot more interesting for me. (laughs) Mm, Nice. So from then, uh, I spent a few years in academics teaching in uh, the universities uh, with advanced computing and high processing, uh, high performance computing. Okay. Uh, So that's about for four years. And then uh, back to... Back to industry again. Uh, mm-hmm. So, from two thousand one, two thousand two onwards, a lot of my time has been spent on applying these um, iterative and increment development principles in data-related projects. So, okay. I started spending a lot of time on that. Um, and in my uh, last uh, assignment, I was heading the Agile Center of Excellence for data warehousing, business intelligence, analytics, big data—that span of things uh, within. Uh,
0: cognizant so that was my last yes yeah nice lots of questions let me try to (laughs) sequence Uh, the first is uh, your own transition from being a a chemistry professional and working in films or uh, that kind of an industry
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, was it a shock to see how software is developed from a project management the planning the coordination of different contributions
2: and all that to be honest, it was not shocking to me. Okay. for the simple reason, until late in my career, mm. fortunately or unfortunately, I never worked for service software service organizations, okay. My first software service organization was uh, cognizant, okay, and I consciously, kept myself a bit away from working for larger organizations. Mm. So therefore, um, when I reflect back now, I was never caught into the web of the typical, the so-called software project management by service organizations. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I was exposed to a lot of project management on the ground Practically by various industries like chemical industries and manufacturing, engineering, manufacturing industries and so on, where I could practically learn a number of uh, the fundamentals of what, we, what uh, today we call as a lean principles or Kanban or just in time and so on and so forth. So I saw them applied in the engineering industries much more um, fluently and effectively, which I started applying back in my software practices. Even I think uh, I did it without my knowledge. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, So to answer your point, uh, Shiv, I was never, um, say, had a long or uh, an exposure or working with a typical uh, software project manager. Okay. See, there
0: are these uh, two broad schools of thought Mm -hmm. when it comes to software and whether it is uh, even engineering or is it science or is it art or craftsmanship and so on. And the other that uh, comes from, let's say the other industries or this more traditional ways of uh, specifying processes. And then once process is there, everything will work, school of thought. So since you have seen both the manufacturing industry where uh, there is a lot of rigor, there is a lot of uh, repetitiveness there can be predictive quality. What do you, th- and you said you also worked on more incremental approaches. So how do you reconcile the two?
2: In fact, when you look at uh, even manufacturing industries, um, not even today, even past, I say, 15 years or 20 years, there are very few industries that in turn had a strong repetitive processes. When you look at repetitive processes, one industry can have a strong repetitive processes provided that industry does not often change its product lines. But if an industry doesn't change its product line, they can no longer remain competitive. That is the other story of it. So therefore, Mm -hmm. if an industry continue to manufacture standard products, day after day, year after year and so on, then the process could be a lot more standardized. But on the other hand, if there is an, say for instance, an engineering industry that is manufacturing, let me take an example of an industrial valve. And if they are manufacturing these industrial valves according to various customer specifications, then they can hardly standardize their process because they cannot even decide what is going to be their um, specific components, batch size in a shop floor. Mm -hmm. And there will be a lot of variable mix and matches and so on. So they have to keep on planning and optimizing it. And it is a natural iterative way of doing things. Okay. Okay. So my point is, uh, I will probably divide the industries, as you know, very well, into two, like maybe like a, process industries and the discrete manufacturing industries and i worked in both so process industries as you said like any other chemical or pharmaceutical fine chemical industries there they can actually standardize the process a bit more uh, than uh, engineering industry which works on a lot of customized customized projects uh, products okay yeah the other
0: uh, question um, was more on um, you mentioned that uh, we worked on data related projects and also heading the data warehousing business intelligence
1: mm-hmm.
0: activities there's always this confusion of uh, applying agile or incremental approaches to something that is more exploratory or where you don't know what the outcome is going to be right? mm-hmm. so what would be your experience or advice or have there been any you know, stories that you know will help our listeners
2: um can you just come again on this question, Shiv? I think I've not uh, got this question right.
0: Okay. See, one question that um, I've also got frequently while coaching teams is that uh, teams that are working on. Uh-huh. Yeah, Sarah, we mentioned um, you work in the domains of you know, data related projects, data warehousing, business intelligence, and so on. Mm-hmm. When I've interacted with some of the teams that have been doing more of R&D kind of work, or even in the data sciences uh, problems, invariably they come back and say that, look, we don't know what we are doing or how we will get the answer or when we will get the answer. Whether it is incremental iterative, we don't know. It is just that one day suddenly we get the answer. So approaches like Scrum, where we want to time box, we want to plan things in small chunks will not apply to us compared to somebody who's either doing specifications and then development or somebody who is responding to fix some issues, etc. So what has been your experience in applying some of these agile principles and practices to areas where it is more exploratory?
2: Right. I will, this is a very, very good question, which I often also get uh, shipped. I would like to uh, take some time to a bit elaborate it and then answer this. Yeah, sure. uh, I will go back to my initial days of software programming. I want to narrate a situation here, which I still remember afresh in my mind. And, and then, you know, come back to this. That is when um, I was writing programs in uh, uh, Fortran and... Uh, sometimes programs in COBOL. At the time, I used to have a manager for me. And uh, at the end of the year, as uh, we have in organizations today, I had a performance appraisal <laughs> meeting session with my boss. So okay. what we do is that we take the list of works that we have done in that you know six months or one year, means what are all the programs that I have written and for which area, and what kind of uh, you know, application it is, and what it delivers, etc. A brief uh, synopsis about that particular program. So I had the list with me. I went to uh, meet my manager when my turn came. So I presented him the whole thing, which I was having in a list of, uh, you know, in, a, in actually a piece of paper. And after listening to me, what he did is he opened his uh, shelf. Then he took another paper from there. Okay. Then he took my paper and against each program he started writing a number. Say if I've written, say, okay. for example, inventory ABC analysis, I'm just you know picking up an example. Then okay. he will write a number called 87, something like that. Okay. I'm just okay. you know narrating as it happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So he used to write these numbers, and I, I don't know what these numbers are. Okay. Then he said. Fine, I don't uh, disagree with you that you have not written this program, but this is the number of times you have compiled each of these programs. Got it? Yeah. Means you have compiled 87 times the ABC analysis programs. Means what? You have either there is a flaw in your understanding of requirements or your implementation. That is what is showing how well you can write a program.
1: Right,
2: <laughs> right. It is a at that time the system used to create automatically the versions as you keep compiling the programs. The more number of times you compile, the more number of versions will be there, and later you can go and delete those versions and then retain the one that is relevant to you. And you know, all those things are there. So, uh, actually speaking, when you look at it, even a simple program development is exploratory in nature means we do repetitively. That is what I used to ask this question many times to even students and the new joinees in the organization that, okay, when you would have written your first Hello World program, how many times you would have compiled it? Mm, That's an interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Right. So if you are listening or reading or absorbing a specification, now you have lot of IDE tool helps today available because you don't have to remember even syntaxes today right? It is automatically it is the tool itself is correcting, helping you and so on. There are a you know, lot of yeah. support system that is available within uh, the development uh, landscape itself. So this is what that typically that we may have to look at it and software development primarily is exploratory in nature. It is not only data science. And that's what I'm coming to this point. Okay. Right? And we, we just do something, compile, see the result, Again, do something. Do it. And this iterative nature is built within every system. It is. It is a natural process, right? Look at um, say, for example, look at a digital photography today. I just go back to my photographic field. Look at a digital photography today. In earlier days, when you have a photographic film in your camera, and if you have your photograph done, unless the film is processed and printed you will not see the image. Right. Okay? And now, if someone is using a digital photography, immediately what they do is everybody come back, see the image. If the image is not good, you take another shot. Mm-hmm. right? Which is actually yeah. an inbuilt iterator way. Mm -hmm. It is an exploratory way until you get a better picture to your satisfaction. See, earlier Mm -hmm. in film shootings, you would have seen people used to take number of takes, take one, take two, take three, take four, right? This is a common thing that everybody would have understood. understood Mm -hmm. Yes, clap. You know, film shooting where they will probably return the scene take and all those things in in a blackboard. It's a small blackboard where they would write and the rolling film will capture that first in order to record which take it is, which shot it is and all those kind of details. So that has been done so that after the film is being processed, then you know that, okay, this is my take number, this is my take number, etc. So you have to wait for that feedback. And now you don't have to wait. If something is not good, you can immediately go and change it. So everything that you look at it, the way we work has gotten subtle internal feedback built into this only thing we don't recognize it number one okay mm. so now if you go back to uh, the data sciences or thing actually scrum is built for exploratory it is not truly built for a predictive model it is built for an exploratory model and data science kind of exercises are the one which is a natural fit for scrum than any other project Mm -hmm. got it so i will go a bit more in detail here when you look at closely about the definition of a scrum team the scrum team itself is seen as a solution team and not just a technical team okay unfortunately since we are converting most of our project or moving most of our projects which were, which were traditionally done in some form or fashion into Scrum, we generally see most of the organizations keep their Scrum team as a technical team, not as a solution team. Okay. I will help you to understand how one can distinguish between a technical team and a Scrum team. Okay, Okay. Uh, often you will also hear from many scrum teams today in the software industry, I'm just specifically calling out a software industry, saying that I have my product backlog, but the product backlog is not detailed enough for me to understand what I have to do, right? Or right. I have my stories that are not elaborated or explained or detailed, right? And yeah. my you know, specification is insufficient for me to start my working. So these are all the common conversational points that you may often hear in many of the software industries. If a sc- team, which is so-called a scrum team, is looking for a detailed product backlog item, elaborated product backlog item, if they are looking for specification, then it is a technical team. Okay. okay? On the other hand, If a Scrum team is looking for a problem statement, not a specification, not a requirement, but a problem statement, then that is a solution. Okay. So Scrum is typically developed or created as a solution team. But unfortunately, in the way we adopted Scrum, it is now a lot more seen as a in many places, a pure technical team rather than a solution team. So therefore, coming back to your specific question, when you look at data sciences group, which may be developing certain statistical models and so on and so forth, they will typically get only a problem statement for them. They won't get a specification. They are the actual Scrum teams indeed. <laughs> they are the one okay. which are which, yes. are which should actually work in Scrum. It, is, it should be the other way around. You got my point, yeah, right. Yeah, so it See, is. Uh, it is. It is completely coming out because of certain misconceptions right. or maybe a false understanding of uh, Scrum or Agile. Itself.
0: Mm. See, many times, uh, probably I didn't uh, give the full picture. The aspect that worries the teams that come up with these questions mm. is that. Uh, they are measured on their velocity <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. okay, so now probably it explains you know why <laughs> okay, they mm-hmm. say that now look, uh, how do I predict? I don't even know what is the size of the story or what is the efforts required to do it, et cetera.
2: right, right. so this is another um uh okay, let's see a problem or a limitation of uh, applying metrics without truly understanding what it is for <laughs> right see yeah. uh, usually uh, anyone i don't see scrum teams alone anyone any organization or um, any department or any group will try to optimize the one that they are measured this is quite uh, this is quite natural Right. Even, um, even you know, someone was telling me if you uh, say that my in mean, my organization everybody should be uh, present uh, sharp at nine o'clock in the organization and have their in the earlier days like your card punching or anything, so everybody will optimize it whether they work or not. That comes secondary. So what you measure, they tend to optimize. All right. Mm-hmm. So yes. the. Actually, the Scrum team should be more worried about getting their solution built rather than the velocity.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that is true. That is that is a problem of metric. It is not the problem of um, you know uh, exploratory or an iterative approach. And in fact, uh, as I said before, data sciences and analytics are a natural fit for these kind of iterative models. Mm,
0: yeah, I think that. Uh... Probably would clarify one of the most common doubts or uh, mm-hmm. confusions that you know, teams have.
2: Right, right. No, no. It is true. Also, this is this is one problem, Shiv. Since we are talking about this, I, I would like to uh, stretch it beyond certain point. It is not only with uh, this problem of uh, velocity, Shiv. If you look at it now, what is happening in many organization because of the proliferation of agile adoption, I would call it, <laughs> people start applying the metrics left, right, center, everywhere, which is causing another sort of distortion or confusion. I will give you a classic example here. Mm-hmm. If a group is adopting Scrum, actually Scrum prescribes a very basic one, which is only your burndown, which is your release burndown and uh, sprint burndown. Which is for the team themselves to know how much work is remaining for them to finish within the time box duration. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, now, when you look at the organization applying many other metrics or measurements to the scrum teams, for example, if an organization is trying to apply lead time, lead time is fundamentally a lean or a Kanban metric, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. lead time or a cycle time or you know those kind of things when you try to apply that to scrum what happens is the scrum team will tend to adjust themselves in order to uh, what can I say give some kind of a, a desirable uh, lead time or a cycle time metric <laughs> okay I will mm, tell you a yeah. case here. I'll tell you a case here and typical a scrum team which is working in a two week sprint what it would do it would pick up certain backlog items to start uh, for that specific sprint, which they have forecasted. And they continue to work for that two week without any uh, diversions or interruptions. And at the end of the sprint, they are going to present their work to the product owner for a review. So typically when you look at it, a cycle time for a scrum team, which is running a two week sprint, the cycle time should always be two weeks for every story that they're working. in. Mm. Because your product owner is going to review, accept or reject only at the end of the sprint during the sprint review. Right. Okay. So now what happens when you try to optimize the cycle time by way of measurement, they expect the product owners to come in between during the sprint. Maybe after two days when I'm ready, I need the product owner to accept it. After five days, if I'm ready, the product owner. So it completely distorts the way... uh, (laughs) Why that you know Scrum is created or Sprint is created? They tend to optimize something else, which is you know, outside the scope. So that is another thing which is happening as well beyond beyond what you said as a velocity here, right? Okay. For those data science teams.
0: Okay. The related question, probably coming uh, will be a complementary or a corollary question, is many teams are moving towards more of a, a continuous delivery or a continuous deployment model. Mm-hmm. They do that. They said, whenever it is ready, I should be able to push it into production. Mm -hmm. When teams are working in that manner and everybody keeps quoting uh, the uh, unicorns saying that these guys, Netflix or Amazon or uh, all these people do so many pushes into production. Mm -hmm. So why do we need a time boxed sprint?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: do you have any suggestions for them?
2: No. No. You can have a continuous delivery or continuous push to production. Then sprint may not be the right one, or because sprint is for a specific. I uh, can I say a set of uh, feature development or a working product development within a certain time frame, right? A continuous development comes in. Say I have seen in cases where uh, organizations develop microservices and you know continuously pushing into uh, it's not sometimes it's not directly into production or maybe a pre-production or an integration environment <coughs> to just see how how that is working etc so that they can adopt in a way that they can actually continuously work and they don't really need a sprint boundary or a time box boundary they don't have to follow sprint over there right because the workflow also, when you really look at it, the work will be flowing to the team continuously, and they you know, generally tend to prioritize by way of the piece of work to be done, or maybe yeah. one single feature to be done, okay? When you look at such kind of things, this is quite possible when a base product is already running in production for you, right? Because you cannot do this while you are building a product, okay? You can do this provided an application or a system is already running in production and there is some kind of a quick enhancements or feature additions that has to happen to that application. Continuously, you will be able to follow this. And you can even reduce your... I've I've seen some teams reducing the sprint length from two week to one week as a shorter one in order to do this as well okay they do that they do that okay but another uh, just as an extension to this point um, a frequent release need not be required in all the environments Shiv. that is another thing where some teams are pressurized and suffer where they their you know situation may not really warrant uh, such frequent releases Okay. Mm. Even I have seen organization where it has got a time to market or you know something like that. They don't even uh, have a test for microservices. I have seen organizations. They just push directly to the production. If it fails, then they have they have a mechanism of uh, tracking it back, fixing it, and then pushing it back to the production. Because at the first attempt, if it works, uh, that kind of an uh, advantage they get in the market is something considerable than spending time in testing. Okay. And some organization does this, but again, it is, um, it is dependent on the kind of application again because you can't do it with any kind of a financial application or a banking application. <laughs> you know, this kind of a production move, which is <laughs> practical to do it. So no, that's why we cannot generalize this, uh, these sort of practices. Probably we may have to take it as a, a technical possibility of continuously integrating and deploying it in production. But the frequency at which one has to do is dependent on the industry and the application. That's what I would say.
0: Mm, That's interesting. In fact, some time back, uh, I was talking to a few other uh, agile coaches Mm -hmm. and the question came up on um, the various questions that come up and uh, I was asking, what is the, it's not the frequently asked question, but the frequently given answer by an agile coach. Mm -hmm. And the consensus was, it depends. Um, Okay. Okay. the primary thing is that don't take uh, something and just try to apply it blindly look at your context and see what fits best
2: right right yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: it is again you You need to look at the business value or advantage this will provide you in your environment is what that one has to see and usually when you are working in an application or a product which is under regulatory environments like financial banking life sciences like you know pharmaceuticals uh, then uh, you know health sciences then uh, you cannot apply it as you apply it in a retail industry or you know like in an you know, Amazon or anything of that sort Amazon or Facebook of that sort
0: right okay um, the last question for uh, this episode, And I have a few more, which we'll probably have uh, more conversations later. Is something that you mentioned at the start of our conversation about uh, focusing on the customer, understanding the need of the customer. Mm -hmm. Based on uh, your experience, as well as your own style of working, uh, what are some of the common causes for misunderstanding the customer requirements?
2: Mm. Okay. Uh, there are so many uh, reasons or why or or, I would probably put it this way most of the time what I have seen the customers requirements are misunderstood (laughs) I would say this way okay most of the times (laughs) the reason is when a specification is given to a team right Okay, I will, I will go to a fundamental statement of some of the uh, thought leaders whom I <laughs> met and we shared. The fundamental uh, misconception that we have is that anything that is documented and given or is, okay, I will rephrase it this way. We have a misconception that sharing a document is sharing of understanding. okay, Okay. this is a misconception. Okay, all the requirement or uh, uh, requirement misunderstanding originates from this misconception of sharing of document is misunderstood to be sharing of understanding. Okay. So therefore, that is why even if you look at the first the origin of uh, the user stories, you you probably would have seen like the three C's. C is the English uh, letter C, which is um, card, conversation, and confirmation. Right. So that is why even the product backlog items, as I said for a solution team, uh, a product backlog item or a user story should be as short as possible And we should be a placeholder for a conversation between the product owner and the scrum team. It is actually a placeholder for that. And they have to converse, they have to elaborate, they have to understand and they have to confirm their understanding back with the product owner. So that means staying close with the uh, business or the product owner or the end user, which is what is fundamental. Here in order to um, what can I say design and develop any application or any system so the fundamental and again um, another biggest misconception which is leading from that documentation is that if any project or any specification is considered to be more complex, then there is a tendency of writing more pages of specification document. Oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not exaggerating, Shiv. You, you would have seen this. I'm not ex- exaggerating. If it is a complex yeah, project, yeah. means you will have very big document, on that, right? right. <laughs> Actually, the complexity is to be simplified, <laughs> right? Right. It, it will make things more complex, <laughs> right? And today, uh, to today, nobody reads uh, reads any documents, right? Today, today, people even don't read the mail beyond the subject line. right maybe first if you write maybe four or five sentences people don't read today because they are uh, (laughs) overflowing with mails and so on people don't read so it has to be a conversation it has to be a workshop style it has to be on a whiteboarding where the understanding is it is a shared understanding so everybody shares Mm -hmm. the understanding it's Mm -hmm. called a term a very fantastic term it's called shared understanding uh, among the team members. So when they work, they use that shared understanding while working in that particular spread. Mm. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that is, uh, it appears simple, but I guess it has to be put into practice.
2: Yes. Yeah. It is simple, uh, but not easy. Mm.
0: Okay. Right. In fact, I was reading somewhere recently that agile transformations uh, are like avocados.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. So
0: it, it takes time to ripen Right. And it's also probably expensive. Right. But definitely full of goodness and will give you a lot of benefits.
2: Right. Right. Very true. Very true. Very true. And uh, now, now in order to move into this kind of a practice, we have uh, a lot of impediments, a lot of impediments everywhere. And uh, Again, among these impediments, I see most of these impediments are invisible impediments. We don't even recognize that as an impediment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, is the, that is the biggest challenge here. right? So, so, probably on some other occasion, we can speak about this as well, maybe on this you know, impediment. And...
0: Yeah, definitely. I can <laughs> see a, a series, a mini series, conversations with you. So one last thing is uh, we also try to see if our guests have any uh, tips for people who are aspiring to get into the industry, and particularly students who work in a collegial atmosphere mm-hmm. as they get into organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would your advice be to them?
2: One uh, one advice to them, because I've been both in... Um know academics as well as in the industry so right, I, that's why this question uh, where the where the gap is see uh, a lot of times uh, the students are um, have, have got tremendous potential tremendous potential and they ideally work as an individual because they never see a collaborative development which is getting in getting us a feature or a product or an application at the end. Mostly like they come as an individual contributor when they join in an organization. So that is where my, um, can I say, suggestion to these um, college students would be that, have some sort of uh, different clubs within your college right maybe like for coding or whatever or maybe different types of coding apps development and so on where you no longer remain as an individual developer but you collaborate with another maybe few within that club in order to make an application ready or you know work with it so that they understand how different pieces of Codes are getting integrated, how a feature is being collectively developed and deployed or how a specification is being uh, uniformly understood by all the members of the team. So these are all the ones uh, that they will uh, definitely learn in this way of working, about four or five of them together. And I have uh, started working with few of the institutions um, because of my earlier association. There is still some kind of uh, a link that is continuing, <laughs> my you know, and communication and involvement with certain of the. Uh, institutions here so where i just promote many of these open sources like they have the github and start using sharing it in the github code sharing you know code uh, compiling building together so they understand the whole life cycle so this is one thing which they can definitely do during their college days itself beyond their um, academic curriculum but what they may not learn in the college environment is the typical organization structure and how various departments within an organization interact. Like, for example, they may not get exposed to a HR department or maybe a finance department or maybe a transport department, facilities and so on and so forth, which they can not get during the college days. So for which the intern should probably help.
0: Mm, Very nice. So that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks a lot, Sairam, for... uh, I think we covered the ground. These are very practical tips. As well as uh, the abstractions that you brought in to understand iteration or how one can approach metrics and so on,
2: I think would be very useful. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Shiv. Thank you.
0: If you like the show and would like to share your experiences with the community, or know someone else who might want to do that, please get in touch with us at podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com That is podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com
1: Please rate this show on Podchaser, Stitcher, iTunes or any other podcast client that you find us on. Please also share our episodes with your friends and others in your network. If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on our show, do write to us at this email address, podcast at pm-powerconsulting.com.